everyone knows that Ukraine has a really big oligarch problem. They have this really good bank. And of course, Kolomoisky and his you know buddies are just basically using it as a piggy bank. Kolomoisky was clearly a huge supporter of Zelensky's campaign. You go from like being on his TV channels to like thanking the security services of Ukraine for arresting him. Now we're seeing images of Kolomoisky behind bars. How do we get from A to B here? So what's really important to know about the war is that they are just hemorrhaging assets left, left and right. So is this the beginning of an end for the oligarchs in Ukraine? Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina, and today we're diving into the backstory and the consequences of an unprecedented event for Ukraine, the arrest of one of its most powerful oligarchs, Ihor Kolomoisky. And for the first time, I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent business editor, Lily Bivings. Lily, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Super glad to be here. But before we go on, I just wanted to remind you guys to subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to the show. Rate us, leave comments, like our content. It really helps others find our show and more people will be informed about the news in Ukraine. So, Lily, everyone knows that Ukraine has a really big oligarch problem. Because the country's economy and politics have been dominated by just a little group of ultra-powerful men and their associates for decades. They've been pulling strings and enriching themselves through corruption and basically stealing from the Ukrainian people. And one of the most powerful men in this bizarre game is uh, Ukrainian oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky. So he rose to power because in 1992 he co-founded Ukraine's largest bank, Privatbank. And he's been exerting immense political power for decades, right until his arrest this September, on September 2nd. So I want to begin by asking you, who really is this guy, Igor Kalamoisky, and why has he been so powerful and so untouchable all these years? Yeah, so, I mean, Igor Kalamoisky got rich like a lot of oligarchs got rich uh, in the 90s. There's sort of mass privatization uh, of, of state property. It's all really cheap. He gets in there just like they all did. But I mean, lots of people got rich that way. They're not all uh, Ihor Kolomoisky, right? The most right. notorious uh, and infinite, infamous uh, Ukrainian oligarch. Um, and I mean, like, we don't have time to get into every single thing that Kolomoisky had his hands in over, the, over his you know, 30, 30 year career, uh, sort of post-independent Ukraine. But I mean, just like just to give uh, the audience an idea, like at some point, you know, he's the owner of Ukraine's largest bank. He uh, controls Ukrnafta, which is an oil and gas company. He controls um, the One Plus One Media Group that has like eight different channels. He controls the Nikopol ferro, uh, ferro uh, alloy plant, uh, Ukrainian International Airlines, and like a slew of other mm -hmm. you know, Ukrainian companies, right? But I mean, like, if we want to talk about how he became powerful, like there's two major ways in which he did that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's metals, there's ferroalloy, and Privatbank. Um, so just to explain a little bit, like in the early 90s, Hennady Boholyubov, who's also a, a Ukrainian oligarch and billionaire, um, get into business together and they start creating lots of companies and they have this sort of informal group of companies called Privat Group, right? Mm -hmm. And two things sort of happen in the early 90s, right? They decide they really want to corner the global market of ferro alloys, right? And they start buying up plants, steel plants mostly, and, uh, you know, different um, ferro alloy materials, plants all over the world, like the United States, Ghana, Australia, obviously they've, they take 
get over in Ukraine. So basically. not just in Ukraine. No, no. Like at one point, they actually um, controlled, like uh, Kolomoisky's companies controlled 40% of the world's wow. uh, mag- manganese trade, which is like, uh, you know, a, a, cru- a crucial uh, component in steel and uh, manufacturing. So like... That's huge. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, uh, Privat Group, this like, you know, group of, of companies or whatever forms Privat Bank, which of course, like Kolomoisky uh, founds in 1992. Uh, and the bank just explodes with growth, eventually covering, you know, half of Ukraine's population, around 20 million people are its customers. And, you know, it was, it was a really good bank. It offered like really good products and services to its customers. When I was young, that was like the only bank I knew. <laughs> no, as, it's as a like kid, probably everyone... the best bank, one of the best yeah. banks in Ukraine. Yeah. So this is what's interesting about this whole thing, right? So they had this really good bank. And of course, Kolomoisky and his you know buddies are just basically using it as a piggy bank. So over the years, you have, you know, massive amounts of depositor funds that are going into the bank because it's a very popular bank, meaning, you know, lots of people are putting their money in that bank. And they're just, you know, it flowing out of the bank and into the pockets of, of the owners and uh, uh, the people that are part of Privat Group, right? You know, we'll get to that. But the bank, obviously, uh, this $5.5 billion hole gets founded in its ledger. ledger. It's nationalized in 2016. And that's sort of, you know, the story uh, of uh, Kolomoisky and his bank. So for years, Kolomoisky was basically stealing a bunch of people's money, just money put by Ukrainians in this ultra popular and successful bank to finance whatever it is that he was financing, his own business empire, I'm sure also his own personal leisure. But when Zelensky was elected back in 2019, Zelensky, uh, our current president, of course, uh, he was campaigning on a very anti-oligarch, anti-corruption platform. Like that was his thing, his very populist thing. But nevertheless, things looked very good for Kolomoisky, right? Like uh, people were even calling Zelensky like Kolomoisky's man. So how does that work together if Zelensky was so anti-oligarch, but at the same time, apparently was accused of uh, being with Kolomoisky? Yes. Zelensky runs on this ticket that he's an outsider. He's going to, you know, get rid of the old guard and he's going right. to, you know, stop the oligarchy and all that. But... That was all sort of overshadowed by the fact that Kolomoisky was clearly a huge supporter of Zelensky's campaign. In what way? Um, well, so not only uh, did his TV channels favorably you know, portray Zelensky during his campaign, but even before that, right, like Zelensky's television show, Servant of the People, in which Zelensky is a history teacher who overnight becomes president, was aired on Kolomoisky's channels. So... I mean, okay, we see that there's sort of a relationship between these guys, yeah. right? And then um, Zelensky also has an ultra successful TV production company, right? Right, and, and, and like he's the, the the shows that he was producing were airing on Kolomoisky channels for years, right? Making so, money for right. Kolomoisky, so right. So there's okay, so there's some sort of business relationship between them. But even during the campaign, right? Like um, Kolomoisky's top lawyer was was appointed as an advisor for Zelensky's campaign. There was Zelensky, I think, was making visits to Kolomoisky, who was at this time, right, in 2019, living in exile. So there are reasons to believe that people thought that, you know, Zelensky was Kolomoisky's guy. And then when Kolomoisky wins in a, in a landslide, right? Um, Not Kolomoisky. Zelensky wins in a landslide. <laughs> Kolomoisky won nothing. Well, he won his guy. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> okay. so, sorry. When Zelensky wins uh, in, a, in a landslide... Um, you know, Kolomoisky returns. Uh, he doesn't get his bank back, which like, you know, I think there were some conversations at the time. Will he get his bank back after it was nationalized once Zelensky's president? No, that doesn't happen. But, you know, 
he's not really doing anything to get that money back. Like what the Western international, um, you know, financial institutions uh, were, were asking him to. So once Zelensky becomes president, you don't really see this move to, to go after oligarchs or oligarchs. Well, there's some stuff against like Medvedchuk, uh, Mm -hmm. who's pro-Russian oligarch and, and Poroshenko, his political rival. It's very easy to go after the literal like friend of Putin and your main rival. And then at the same time, uh, during, uh, Zelensky's presidency, um, People in the government who are deemed, you know, threats to Kolomoisky's uh, ability to do whatever he wants are, are, are removed from their post by, by Zelensky. So you have Prosecutor General Ruslan uh, Reboshapka, who's, who's uh, pursuing an investigation on the oligarch, removed from his post. Um, governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, uh, the, the prime minister as well, who was trying to go after Kolomoisky for his influence in, at uh, Centernergo. A state company. A state company, which... Um, Kolomoisky managed to kind of gain control over, I mean, gain influence. He had minority mm-hmm. shares in the company because uh, it's a state-owned company, but he, he managed to essentially take control by his, with his connections in the management of that state-owned company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like in the beginning of Zelensky's presidency, at least things were going pretty well for Kolomoisky. And wasn't also the top lawyer that you mentioned, Andriy Bohdan, he became Zelensky's chief of staff. Right. So that's Kalamoisky's guy, lawyer, becoming Zelensky's chief of staff, pretty big. So what you're describing actually sounds like an excellent business and political climate for this oligarch who everyone knows that he's problematic. Everyone knows that oligarchs are bad, but um, it's still looking on for him. Uh, So how do we get from that point to now Zelensky still being in power, but actually seemingly prosecuting him? via other legal channels. And now we're seeing images of Kolomoisky behind bars. How do we get from A to B here? So it, things start to change uh, for Kolomoisky and, and oligarchs in Ukraine, sort of, uh, it's around 2020, 2021, when Zelensky kind of starts to begin this de-oligarchization drive uh, right. in Ukraine, right? With this de-oligarchization law, mm-hmm. right? And... A couple other things happen, right? In, in in between, there's this other law that's called the sort of anti-Kolomoisky law, which um, prevents former owners of nationalized banks from getting those banks back. So this was seen as a direct, uh, you know, sort threat of threat to, to Kolomoisky, to, to Kolomoisky right? Which means you know now he's not going to get his bank back, and that's uh, under Zelensky's administration. So that's big. Then you know. Um, Kolomoisky loses his influence at Center Energo because management has changed there. So he's no longer got his guys in there. And Center Energo is one of Ukraine's largest um, energy generating companies. So yeah, Kolomoisky loses control over that. Yeah. I mean, I think they, uh, Center Energo produces like 15% of the electricity in, uh, in Ukraine. So it's a huge company. Yeah. that he loses uh, control over, essentially. Um, Around the same time, you know, 2020, 2021, Kolomoisky is sanctioned in the United States. Um, so he's not allowed to enter. Why? Like this. Um, well, among other things, he, uh, like some of the money that he laundered actually from Prebat Bank was used to buy property in the United States. And that's kind of how they get him in the United States and okay. sanction him. And, you know, several of the bank's top managers from the past start facing some charges. Uh, he's facing some charges. He's getting out of them, uh, of course. But, um, you know... Uh, his kind of top guy in parliament, Kolomoisky's top guy in parliament, Dubinsky, Alexander Dubinsky, is also kicked out of the, the servant of the people, Zelensky's ruling party, uh, because he's also sanctioned by the U.S. So 
And a lot of things start happening. Yeah. And why? Like, what? what's the main drive here? What, why in 2021 Zelensky suddenly kind of switches his tune? Yeah, I think at the time uh, you have COVID, you have a lot of funding that's tied to COVID. Um, you know, you have a lot more uh, pressure from Western uh, financial institutions on Ukraine to pass reforms. This might be some of that. And I think there's some of this pressure from the United States because they want to mm-hmm. see something happen because now they've sanctioned him. So I think there's just sort of this this drive to from, you know, partly driven, I wouldn't say entirely driven because there's also sort of the civil society aspect here in Ukraine, but I think partly driven by by outside pressure. Yeah. That was, you know, maybe brought on by by the COVID pandemic. And so then there is this famous anti-oligarch bill, which uh, is a huge deal. Let's let, let's talk about this bill. What is this bill trying to do? Why is Zelensky trying to pass it? Essentially, this bill is like a registry of oligarchs. So it's like if you, you know, fall under these criteria, you will be registered as an oligarch. Uh, and of course, all of the Ukrainians that we know as oligarchs would technically fall under this. And but, you know, I think more importantly, if you fall under this criteria as an oligarch, then you cannot finance political parties. And you cannot take part in any mass, uh, you know, um, purchases of, of properties that are being privatized, of like huge uh, uh, privatization um, purchases. And also, I think if politicians or public servants have any connections to you, or like any meetings, like literally having coffee with you at a gas station somewhere, they have to report right, it. Right, it has to be reported, right. Yeah, so yeah. all connections with oligarchs have to be reported. Yeah. That's a big deal. So, yeah, so he starts running into a lot of these problems. He's got, you know, lawsuits in half a dozen countries and charges against him. But, you know, still at this time, 2020, 2021, um, he's still owns, you know, billions and is doing fine. And let's just stop here for a bit because we've been talking about, you know, state-owned companies and oligarchs having shares. And um, let's explain why that's problematic for an oligarch, someone like Kolomoisky, to actually have partial ownership over a state company like Centrenerga or Ukrnafta or any of those other companies? So the problem first and foremost about what oligarchs do is that they and their allies form these really close connections with people in, in government, in the state, um, in order to obtain insider information to then kind of make deals, business deals that benefit only them. And, you know, in terms of state-owned companies, what oligarchs have done generally is they engage in rent-seeking. So rent-seeking is basically, you know, growing your wealth uh, with your kind of, you know, connections by mm-hmm. manipulating the social and political sphere to, to enrich yourself without actually like making any money for the company or, or okay. you know, without creating new wealth. So let's put it that way. Um, in the case of Kolomoisky and Centerenergo, for example, again, one of the largest power generating companies in Ukraine, you know, while he only had minority shares in the company, because, you know, a state-owned company, the state has the majority of the shares. Um, he exerted basically control over the management, mm-hmm. right? Because these people were connected to him. And that's what's important, right? So the decisions that were made were made like with Kolomoisky's, you know, approval or disapproval or whatever. And, you know, that's that outsized influence that oligarchs can have at companies where they shouldn't is, is, is extremely problematic. And, and, you know, then at these state-owned companies like Centro Energo, what happens, right, is that you enter into agreements with, you know, your other corrupt friends who then supply the raw materials to that company uh, to produce like electricity in the case of Santa Energo, right? So you engage in very corrupt 
agreements with the company that makes gas for your you know, electricity company. And in that way, you kind of are just enriching each other. Right. Without actually, you know, making the company a better, more profitable institution. But, you know, and I want to make one, one point that I think is important about um, energy companies and control over energy companies. That's so, um, you know, frightening when you have this kind of oligarchic situation, which is that, uh, this oligarchy, excuse me, is that they are, they have control over an extremely important piece of infrastructure in society. Especially and, during war. Oh, exactly. Right. So now we, especially here in Ukraine, understand to what extent this right. infrastructure is critical. Right. And if you as, you know, a state actor tries to go after these people for their behavior and they say, well, you know, we control people's ability to turn the lights on or have gas or heating or whatever. I mean, you, you as a politician are not going to go, okay, go for it, you know, because you need to protect citizens. Right. So they have an immense amount of control over these critical infrastructure. And that's also why it's a huge problem. Okay, so slowly but surely, Kolomoisky finds himself in a situation where uh, he's no longer one of the masters of Ukraine's business environment, right? So his associates are suffering. Um, he's starting to be investigated. Other oligarchs also, not other than Kolomoisky, uh, they're getting worried because of this bill. But when Russia launches its full-scale invasion back in February 2022, um, Kolomoisky is actually... First of all, still not in jail. And also, according to Forbes, he's the richest he's been in years uh, with like his total net worth uh, up to $2 billion. So how does the war, if at all, change the reality, the political and economic reality for Kolomoisky, but also all other oligarchs in Ukraine? How does the oligarchy in Ukraine change? Ukraine is faced with this huge existential threat, right? And, and sort of this the arguments between oligarchs and their people in power could fade into the background for, for the most part, especially in the beginning. And also Zelensky goes from being this guy with terrible ratings to like... The guy. The guy, right? And you kind of have to play along with him now, right? So, you know, but I mean, the, but more importantly for the oligarchs, what's really important to know about the war is that they are just hemorrhaging assets left, left and right. I mean, uh, if you think about it, like most of these oligarchs' assets are... Uh, metallurgy, right, and and agriculture and uh, mines, all of that's in the south and east of Ukraine, where either you know horrible battles are happening or they're being occupied. So their assets have either been destroyed or uh, uh, they're occupied and reappropriated by by whatever Russian occupying forces or collaborators or whatever. Um, I mean, just you know, Ukraine's richest oligarch, uh, Akhmetov. Renat Akhmetov, Renat, right. Uh, sorry, Renat Akhmetov has already lost like his two main metallurgy uh, plants, the Azovstal plant in Mariupol, which is you know famous now for for the siege and the, the, the defense of that by by Ukrainian soldiers, and also you know an iron and steelworks plant. Uh, Firtash has lost a chemical plant in Severodonetsk. Uh, Ihor Kolomoisky has lost um, his uh, oil refining plant in Kremenchuk. Like all of them have these huge industrial assets that if they haven't already been destroyed or, or, or taken over, they're at risk. And they're also not just at risk because they're in the east and the south. They're also at risk because they're Ukraine's critical infrastructure and Russia purposefully targets that because, you know, they yeah. know that that's a way to turn off the yeah, heating, yeah, yeah. the water, the electricity, etc. Exactly. So, so for them, it's, you know, I think, uh, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty certain that you can say that what they're doing, you know, when people are always like, where, where are the oligarchs? What are they doing? They're sitting with their legal teams all day going, oh my God, how can we save this? Like, stop the bleeding, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and they're also preparing for these huge international lawsuits to get that money 
you know, when, when money starts kind of coming uh, from wherever to, to pay back some of these, these things that Russia has destroyed, they will be really well prepared to defend themselves to, to get money for the assets they've lost. So Because it's, it's millions of dollars. It's yeah, huge amounts of assets lost. Huge, exactly. So, and they've got the, the, the resources and the, and the fancy lawyers to, to prepare for that, right? So, um, but very important, these economic losses have also been accompanied by the loss of political influence because TV... Their other major asset uh, is now under presidential decree, only showing 24-hour TV marathon of war news, right? Yeah. Um, so they're not making any money on these TV channels, which they were not ever really making tons of money off of either, ever. It was, you know, more to, to, to control the, the narrative and to, mm -hmm. right? So it was, very, it was a very influential tool for them, but it was never really profitable. I think combine this sort of, um, you know, political, the loss of political influence, um, with, uh, with, uh, the economic losses, I mean, yeah, I, I think their ability to manipulate the political situation, at least currently has been seriously diminished. In addition to all of that, Ukraine began nationalizing parts of the critical infrastructure, right? Yeah, exactly. So they, you know, lost their control over certain assets completely. And then, you know, during the, the full scale invasion as well, uh, you get these reports that, like by presidential decree that was never published, Zelensky has taken away uh, Kolomoisky's um, passport, citizenship, Ukrainian citizenship. You know, it's not really known if this happened or not, but it maybe did. Um, and so that's a huge deal if Zelensky himself is is uh, by presidential decree taking away the citizenship of of an oligarch, right? And then comes September second, um, just last week, uh, and. This is two years into the war, uh, and also decades into Kolomoisky's reigning free. Uh, he's finally arrested. Uh, what is he arrested for? I mean, there is so much there that they could accuse him of. So what are the charges? Yeah. In short, he's charged with uh, uh, fraud and money laundering, um, which, you know, an embezzlement, which right. we can... Financial <laughs> corruption. Right, yeah. Right, right, right. Financial crimes, right. Um, the security service of Ukraine, the SBU. Um, said he moved uh, like over $13 million out of the country between 2013 and 2020. Um, his bail was set to the same amount. And he said he wasn't going to, you know, he refused to pay it. So that's why he's in pre, um, he's in a detention center for, right. for a couple months or whatever. Ukraine's um, National Anti-Corruption Bureau uh, has charged him with embezzling like $250 million from Privatbank. Um, and so this is that scheme that you mentioned in the beginning, right? So them this is stealing money from Privat from Privat Bank because I think that was sort of the main source of of their the money that they used to to fund other activities. Um, and then he's you know um, uh, Ukraine the Ukrainian government has also like frozen his uh, shares in over three hundred companies because right remember we we mentioned the beginning there's this Privat Group which is sort of this the unofficial name of, of well it's sort of an unofficial group of companies yeah. that are related to one another, you know, yeah. and at the center of them is Kolomoisky and Bohalyubov, who is, by the way, fine, sitting, sitting pretty right now, you know, that, not that, charged with a bunch of things that he should be charged for. So and that's, that's a question that, on people's minds. That's Kolomoisky's main partner, who's who, obviously involved in all of this. Main partner since they were like teenagers, like selling, I don't know, post so like early, late Soviet, kind of early 90s, like jeans or whatever, you okay, know, like yeah, out yeah. of the trunk of a car, like that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. and then, yeah, yeah. And so, nothing happened to him. No, no, he's fine. He's, he's, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly where he is, but he's not uh, charged, charged with things. He's not sitting in a jail cell like Kolomoisky is, that's for sure. So this feels huge. 
to be honest, because this is the first time in Ukraine's history that an ultra-powerful oligarch is behind bars for corruption. But the question that I and I'm sure many other people have is like, why Kalamoisky and also why now? Because to be honest, his arrest was kind of anticlimactic in a way because it it wasn't like it it wasn't a result of some really public uh, probe into him. You know, like he hasn't been in the news for so long, uh, so it was really unexpected. Just one day, we all wake up to the news of him being arrested. So, like, what? I mean, what do you think? Why? Why him? And why now? Yeah, I think it's to to your comment about it being anticlimactic, it's like, yeah, I mean, with everything else going on in Ukraine, it's like, well, obviously this guy should be in jail, you know, like whatever. We, we've uh, known yeah, for yeah, years. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Course, like, <laughs> yeah, we've been waiting for like 10 years for this. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, but I think that um, what uh, one of our reporters, uh, Igor Kosov, uh, reported that like, based on the people he spoke to, what they think is that it's a very complicated case, given Right. Like everything we've talked about today, uh, he had his hands in so many things, so many companies in different countries, different jurisdictions. It's very, this is a very complicated case to bring against this person who's also a very, you know, powerful person who's very well protected, has good lawyers and things. It's, it's, yeah. it's not easy. Um, but they also believe, there's people that our reporter spoke to, that um, it may have something to do with the sanctions in the United States, right? And this sort of maybe there's, and I don't want to say it's like pressure from the United States, it's that the Zelensky in the United States is a major, if not the major partner to Ukraine's war effort. Of course. And if the U.S. is like, okay, you know, uh, like, let's maybe do something should, about this let's, guy. Right, let's coordinate. We have these sanctions. Let's do something. There was probably more willingness now within the Zelensky government to do that. And and one thing that I was, that I thought was even kind of overlooked was that when the SBU arrested Kolomoisky, Zelensky actually like thanked the security services publicly for having done this, right? So you go from like being on his TV channels to like thanking the security services of Ukraine for arresting him. Right. Which, within like a couple of years, right? Yeah. Um, which kind of seems like a, almost a personal, you know, Zelensky going after him personally <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know? know. I mean, it's... I mean, uh, SBU is pretty much controlled by the president's office, so... There was a reason why for so long they haven't arrested him and then now they did. Right, right. And I think, you know, I don't know if we, we will ever know the exact reason, but I think we can guess it's, it's, it's part of this, it's also probably part of this effort for the Ukrainian government to show that it's really trying to clean house, right? Especially after these two corruption scandals in the defense ministry, it's really embarrassing. It's really bad, yeah. It's really bad. And so maybe this is, maybe this is why it's happening now, because we just came out of these two scandals. Reznikov is gone. Uh, okay. And on that note, we just did an episode on this. So you guys make sure to check it out on YouTube and on all audio platforms. Uh, our last podcast episode is exactly on this, on the corruption within the defense ministry. Um, so that might have had an effect where it was like, okay, here's the time to show the world right after these embarrassing scandals that look, look, we, we arrested the, the top, uh, the top guy. So it could be that. So is this the beginning of an end for the oligarchs in Ukraine? Like, is this the move that's really going to topple the whole house? I spoke with someone yesterday from the uh, Anti-Corruption Action Center here in Ukraine, Tatiana Shevchuk, and she said to me, like, actually, yeah, I mean, I think this move, arresting Kolomoisky, was a huge signal to the oligarchs that the way things were before are, are, are done. This is not, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, there, there won't be perhaps like new oligarchs that pop up in Ukraine, especially like when we get into reconstruction time, right? right? Um, it's perfectly possible. But I think 
if somebody from the anti-corruption action center in Ukraine actually feels this is a, is a signal, I think we can, we can agree with that. I don't think Tatiana's point was that there will be no more oligarchs in Ukraine. What she means is that this sort of, this blatant uh, kind of political control that they exerted is probably kind of on its way out. It doesn't mean that they won't stay very rich or become even richer. We're now going to be moving to some questions that we got from our community members. Uh, as always, I'll remind you guys that you should go to thecommindependent.com slash membership to support the Independent. There's an option for a one-time donation. There is also an option to become fully members of our community by donating every month. There are different tiers for as little as $5 a month. And you get really cool perks like um, discussions with editors. And uh, you also get access to a Discord server with all of the members of the community and us. We try to engage as much as possible there. And of course, our favorite perk is that you get a chance to send us in questions for every episode of the podcast. And we try to incorporate as many of them into the episode as we can. And so the question that we're going to be addressing today is, uh, who do you think benefits most from Kolomoisky's arrest? I don't know, but maybe if we're thinking about it in terms of um, if it was a PR stunt, I mean, it's a good thing that Kolomoisky was arrested and that he's facing charges. But if we see it as like the Ukrainian government's kind of uh, a move by the Ukrainian government to show the world that it's fighting corruption, then I think it's probably very beneficial for the Ukrainian government's reputation in the world. It's good to take these steps. I think it makes people feel, even if people are cynical and, and, and think that, you know, the political structures don't really have the ability to change in the way that they should. I think, you know, if you see something like this, it's like, okay, well, like maybe we have like hope, some, some hope, you know, uh, that at least like someone like this cannot get away with forever, it forever. Right. Um, Ukraine is signaling at least initially and in some way that this is not how we do business here. Okay. Like this is not appropriate. Uh, you can't just have a fancy cool bank and then steal all the money from it. Like that's no. Um, so I mean, I think Ukraine benefits. I think Ukraine's reputation benefits. Um, the Ukrainian people yeah, benefit. Yeah, I think the Ukrainian people benefit. I mean, I hope they do. I hope that they benefit from this, right? I hope that that's who the ultimate uh, you know, beneficiary of, yeah. of this move is, right? That's the point in theory. Well, on this hopeful note, Lily, thank you very much. It was really interesting to listen to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Also this week, Elon Musk is under fire for denying the request of the Ukrainian government to activate his Starlink internet in Crimea, around the city of Sevastopol, when Ukraine was trying to attack the Russian fleet there. Musk said that he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to be a direct party to the war. UK's foreign office said that back on August 24th, the Russian military targeted a civilian cargo ship in Ukraine's Black Sea port in Odessa with caliber missiles. But Ukraine's air defenses shot all missiles down, the report said. And Ukraine retook nearly five square kilometers of land on the southern front, liberated the village of Opetne in Donetsk Oblast, and regained control of several oil rigs in the Black Sea, which now poses a serious security threat and issue for Russia, according to the Ukrainian Navy. As always, you can find our show on YouTube and audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this podcast, please, please subscribe to us. Leave comments and rate us on all platforms. Uh, support the Cuban Independent by going to cubindependent.com slash membership and becoming a member of our community. And also follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>